Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Earth and its sediments deep below, where the light doesn't shine, hold many mysteries, but scientists think they've cracked one of them, and it could have implications for life on other planets. That's next. Explore other science mysteries in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. Scientists poke and prod at the fringes of habitability in pursuit of life's limits. To that end, they've tunneled kilometers below Earth's surface, drilling outward from the bottoms of mine shafts and sinking boreholes deep into ocean sediments. Tori Holer is a chemist and astrobiologist at NASA's Ames Research Center. He says to their surprise, life was everywhere that they looked, and it was present in staggering quantities. By various estimates, the inhabited subsurface realm has twice the volume of the oceans, and the number of cells it contains is estimated to be 10 to the 30th power. That's a million, trillion, trillion. That makes it one of the biggest habitats on the planet, and one of the oldest and most diverse, too. Researchers are still trying to understand how most of the life down there survives, Sunlight for photosynthesis can't reach such depths, and the meager amount of organic carbon food that does is often quickly exhausted. Communities of organisms that dwell near hydrothermal vents on the seafloor or within continental regions warmed by volcanic activity can rely on high-temperature processes that support some subsurface life. But ecosystems here generally can't do that. These microbes must hang on in deep cold and darkness. Two recent papers by different research groups now seem to have solved some of this mystery for cells beneath the continents and in deep marine sediments. They find evidence that the nuclear process of radioactive decay can sustain life deep below the surface. Radiation from unstable atoms and rocks can split water molecules into hydrogen and chemically reactive peroxides and radicals. Some cells can use the hydrogen as fuel directly. The remaining products can turn minerals and other surrounding compounds into additional energy sources. These radiolytic reactions yield energy far more slowly than the sun and underground thermal processes. But the researchers have shown that they're fast enough to be key drivers of microbial activity in a broad range of settings, and that they're responsible for a diverse pool of organic molecules and other chemicals important to life. Jack Mustard is a planetary geologist at Brown University who wasn't involved in the new work. The whole world of life that's not sustained by photosynthesis needs to have another source of energy. Hydrogen is one of the best that you can have. And hydrogen had often been tied to things like alteration and serpentinization in the deep sea, in the oceanic crust, and then you go to the seeps of that hydrogen, right? That's one way to do it. Those are pretty rare. Then as the realization came along that you could do it through 
radioactive decay interacting with water just opened up all new vistas. And that brought new questions. What could life look like? How might it have emerged on an early Earth? Where else in the universe might it be found? Barbara Sherwood Lawler set off for university in 1981, four years after the discovery of life at hydrothermal vents. All of this really spoke to the kid in me. My mother was an English teacher originally, and then both my parents taught history, French history and European history, and fed me on a steady diet of Jules Verne. And for sure, just the sheer exotic and exciting idea that you were understanding a part of the planet that had never been seen before, a kind of life that we didn't understand yet. For sure, that was part of what spoke to the excitement of exploration. Sherwood Lawler says she also loved that the mysteries of the deep subsurface spawned an interdisciplinary field. At that time, it was more conventional to study chemistry, biology, physics, geology. This was an area that clearly was going to trample that, those boundaries, and require someone to be able to be conversant in geology, biology, and chemistry altogether. So that was very attractive to me and, and many others of my generation, this idea that these would be questions that would allow us to take an interdisciplinary focus. Throughout Sherwood Lawler's training in the 1980s and her career as a geologist at the University of Toronto in the 90s, more and more subterranean microbial communities were uncovered. The enigma of what supported this life prompted some researchers to propose that there might be a deep hydrogen-triggered biosphere full of cells using hydrogen gas as an energy source. Many geological processes could plausibly produce that hydrogen, but the best-studied ones occurred only at high temperatures and pressures. These included interactions between volcanic gases, the breakdown of particular minerals in the presence of water, and serpentinization. That's the chemical alteration of certain kinds of crustal rock through reactions with water. By the early 2000s, Sherwood Lawler, Li Hong Lin, now at National Taiwan University, Tulis Onstott of Princeton University, and their colleagues took a closer look at water from deep beneath the South African and Canadian crust. Essentially, we dove back into the radiolytic literature, largely because up until that point, we'd been able to explain the hydrogen that we found in these deep systems, high concentrations of hydrogen, stunningly in some cases, stunning. We'd been able to explain them in many sites because of a process that you've probably heard referred to as serpentinization, which is the hydrogen that gets produced due to hydration reactions. But in Lee Hung's case, he was working at a series of sites in the Woods Waters Rand Basin in South Africa that didn't contain those kinds of minerals. And yet, we were still finding really high levels of hydrogen. Sherwood Lawler says other processes didn't seem likely either because of the absence of recent volcanic activity and magma flows. So we began to look and expand our understanding of hydrogen-producing reactions and their relationship to the chemistry and mineralogy of the rocks in these places. A clue came from their discovery that the water trapped in those rocky places held not just large amounts of hydrogen, but also helium. That's an indicator that particles from the radioactive decay of elements like uranium and thorium were splitting water molecules. That process, water radiolysis, was first observed in Marie Curie's lab at the beginning of the 20th century. 
That's when researchers realized that solutions of radium salts generated bubbles of hydrogen and oxygen. Curry called it an electrolysis without electrodes. It took a few more years for scientists to realize that the oxygen came from hydrogen peroxide created during the process. Sherwood Lawler, Lynn, Onstott, and their collaborators proposed this in 2006, that the microbial communities under South Africa and Canada derived the energy for their survival from hydrogen produced through radiolysis. So began their long quest to unpack how important radiolysis might be to life in natural settings. For much of the next decade, the researchers obtained samples from deep aquifers at various mining sites and related the complex chemistries of the fluids to their geological surroundings. Some of the water trapped beneath the Canadian crust had been isolated from the surface for more than one billion years, perhaps even for two billion. Within that water were bacteria, still very much alive. Jack Mustard says it's kind of mind-blowing. There are groundwaters that have, for over two billion years, been isolated, and yet they still have biological activity. That's just like, are you kidding me? And that had to be a completely self-sustained system. Your carbon, your energy, your nutrients all had to come from within this little tiny community. And, you know, wait a minute, like, this is like a two billion year old community. I mean, the organisms themselves aren't two billion years old, but they are part of a generation of organisms that have been around for two billion years, isolated from the rest of the world. By the process of elimination, radiolysis looked like a possible energy source. But could there be enough of it to support life? In 2014, Sherwood Lawler and her colleagues combined the results of nuclear chemists' lab work with models of the crust's mineral composition. What we tried to do there was to move beyond some of the studies that had been done in the marine lithosphere, looking at the ocean crust and production of hydrogen there, and for the first time to do a calculation of how much hydrogen was being produced in the continental lithosphere. Continents, and in particular to estimate how much might be coming from serpentinization and how much might be coming from radiolysis. And so that was the first time that we really hung some verifiable quantitative numbers on hydrogen production in the continents. And we're able to show that the amount of hydrogen being produced by those two sets of processes in the continents were as large as what was happening in the marine lithosphere, but had been completely forgotten about. There had been no estimate made up until that point. So literally just by including looking at these processes in the continents, we doubled the estimate of hydrogen production on the planet in the context of habitability and what that might mean for a deep subsurface biosphere. Microbes could directly utilize the hydrogen produced by radiolysis, but that was only half the story. To make full use of it, they needed not just hydrogen as an electron donor, but another substance as an electron acceptor. The scientists suspected the microbes were finding that in compounds made when the hydrogen peroxide and other oxygen-containing radicals from radiolysis reacted with surrounding minerals. In work published in 2016, they showed that inside one Canadian mine, radiolytic hydrogen peroxide was likely interacting with sulfides in the walls to produce sulfate, an electron acceptor. But Sherwood Lawler and her colleagues still needed proof that cells were relying on that sulfate for energy. 
In 2019, they finally got it. By culturing bacteria from the groundwater in mines, they were able to show that the microbes made use of both the hydrogen and the sulfate. Jesse Tarnas is a planetary scientist and NASA postdoctoral fellow who studies this stuff too. He says you just need some water, some radioactive decay, and a little bit of sulfide. And then you get a sustained system of energy production that can last for billions of years and just sort of be like an ambient pulse of habitability of just putting energy into that system through the radioactive decay of those elements. In their February paper, Sherwood Lawler and her colleagues showed that radiolysis is instrumental, not just in the hydrogen and sulfur cycles on Earth. It's also instrumental in the cycle most closely associated with life, that of carbon. Analyses of water samples from the same Canadian mine showed very high concentrations of acetate and formate, organic compounds that can support bacterial life. Measurements of isotopic signatures indicated that the compounds were not being made by cells. It means it's one of the few places on the planet where the smear of life hasn't contaminated everything. We know there's some microbes there, but they aren't a lot, and they're at very low biomass, and they seem to be very relatively slow rates. And so they're not dominating the carbon cycle. We're seeing instead a deep carbon cycle that's more dominated by abiotic organic synthesis. And, and those are pretty rare and precious places on our planet. The researchers hypothesized that radiolytic products were reacting with dissolved carbonate minerals from the rock to produce the large quantities of carbon-based molecules they were observing. To cement their hypothesis, Sherwood Lawler's team needed additional evidence. It arrived just one month later. Nuclear chemists led by Laurent Truche, a geochemist at Grenoble Alps University in France, and Johann Vandenbohr of the University of Nantes, had been independently studying radiolysis in lab settings. In work published in March, they pinned down the precise mechanisms and yields of radiolysis in the presence of dissolved carbonate. They measured exact concentrations of various byproducts, including formate and acetate. The quantities and rates they recorded aligned with what Sherwood Lawler was seeing in the deep fractures within natural rock. While Sherwood Lawler was conducting her field research within the continental subsurface, a handful of scientists were trying to suss out the effects of radiolysis beneath the seafloor. Chief among them was Steve DeHaunt, a geomicrobiologist at the University of Rhode Island. In February, he and his graduate student, Justine Savage, and their colleagues published the results of nearly two decades' worth of detailed evidence that radiolysis is important for sustaining marine subsurface life. In 2010, DeHunt and Fumio Inagaki, a geomicrobiologist at the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, led a drilling expedition. They collected samples of sub-seafloor sediments from around the globe. DeHunt and Savage then suspended dozens of sediment types in water and exposed them to different types of radiation. Here's DeHunt. What we found was if we calculate the production rates given the natural radioactivity of the sediment and the composition of the sediment in different parts of the ocean, then we're producing radiolytic hydrogen at faster rates than organic matter is being oxidized. 
the sediments were amplifying the products of radiolysis. The yields are much higher for alpha radiation than for gamma radiation, which isn't a surprise because the physics of those two radiation events are very different. But the yields were ridiculous. You know, like abyssal clay consistently amplifies the yield by more than an order of magnitude. In some cases, the presence of sediment in the water increased the production of hydrogen by a factor of nearly 30. The explanation that I find most compelling is that some minerals essentially behave like a semiconductor, that when you release the radiation energy within a mineral, you release it by producing excitons. And then the excitons can propagate to the mineral surface and split water across a broader front. In that case, you end up converting much more of the radiation energy into production of hydrogen and oxidant. Meaning chemical energy that microbes can eat. Yet DeHunt and his colleagues found barely any hydrogen in the sediment cores they drilled. And when we measure the hydrogen in the sediment, it's not measurable. So whatever hydrogen's being produced is disappearing. The researchers think it's being consumed by the microbes living in the sediments. According to their models, in deep sediments more than a few million years old, radiolytic hydrogen is being produced and consumed more quickly than organic matter is. That makes radiolysis of water the dominant source of energy in those older sediments. It only accounts for 1-2% to 2 of the total energy available in the global marine sediment environment, the other 98% comes from organic carbon, which is mostly consumed when the sediment is young. Still, its effects are quite sizable. Doug LaRoe, a planetary scientist at the University of Southern California, says the process might be slow. But if you integrate that effect over 100 million years from a geologic perspective and geologic time, it starts to add up. Justine Savage says the findings have a lot of implications. It's quite striking. It doesn't create a new paradigm, but it really shows that it's a fundamental source of bioavailable energy for a significant microbiome on Earth. So that's just looking on the, on the Earth side. And like just widening out to other planets and moons, it shows that in any environment where you have water and sediment grains or rocks, you'll produce those compounds. It could also illuminate how abiotic organic synthesis may have set the stage for the origin of life, both on Earth and elsewhere. Sherwood Lawler has been invigorated by her team's recent observations that in the closed environmental system around the Canadian mines, most of the carbon-containing compounds seem to have been produced abiotically. Life had been on our planet for more than a billion years at the time these rocks formed, but it is a place where abiotic organic synthesis is still the dominant set of reactions. So in that sense, it's an analog for what might have been the prebiotic soup that our Earth might have had before life arose. Even if life didn't arise in this kind of subsurface environment, it provided a safe place where life could be sustained for long stretches of time, far away from the dangers found at the surface, like meteor impacts and high levels of radiation that plagued early Earth. Modeling and experimental work have shown that even simple systems can lead to extremely intricate microbial food webs. Adding compounds like formate and acetate from radiolysis to the mix could significantly broaden the potential ecological landscape. 
And because acetate and formate can form more complex organics, they can give rise to even more diverse systems. Kara Magnabosco is a geobiologist at the Swiss Institute of Technology in Zurich. Magnabosco says it's important to see life operating with this amount of complexity, even in something you might view as simple and energy poor, driven by these water-rock interactions. USC's Doug LaRoe says it would be great to know whether radiolysis can generate high concentrations of organics. Let's say the process can only make basic organic carbons like formate and acetate. If you move those compounds into a different environmental setting, perhaps they can react there to form something else. They become starter or feeder material for more complex reactions in a different setting. That might even help bring scientists closer to understanding how amino acids and other important building blocks of life arose. Sherwood Lawler is now collaborating with other scientists, including colleagues at the CIFAR Earth 4D project. They're studying how the organic molecules present in the ancient Canadian water might complexify the chemistry at hand. Benedicta Menez is a geobiologist at the Paris Institute of Earth Physics and one of the leaders of the research. She says they plan to show how the coevolution of organics and minerals is key for the diversification of these organic compounds. Her aim is to determine how more complicated organic structures could form and subsequently play a role in some of the earliest microbial metabolisms. Astrobiologists are also realizing how crucial it might be to consider radiolysis when constraining the habitability of planets and moons. Sunlight, high temperatures, and other conditions might not be strictly needed to sustain extraterrestrial life. Radiolysis should be practically ubiquitous on any rocky planet that has water in its subsurface. Take Mars. In a pair of studies in the past couple of years, Tarnas, Mustard, Sherwood Lawler, and other researchers translated quantitative work being done on radiolysis on Earth to the Martian subsurface. Here's Tarnas. Since we have Martian meteorites that can be really, really precisely measured in the lab, We can both know what the sulfide concentrations in those meteorites are, as well as their radionuclide concentrations, and then also know what the average grain size of those sulfide grains are, because that's what affects the amount of surface area that's available for the hydrogen peroxide to oxidize the sulfides. The researchers found that based on the planet's mineral composition and other parameters, Mars today might be able to sustain microbial ecosystems like those on Earth, with radiolysis alone. The scientists identified regions of the planet where the microbial concentration would likely be greatest, which could guide where future missions should be targeted. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowitz's full article, Radioactivity May Fuel Life Deep Underground and Inside Other Worlds, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication launched by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. 